This is the Notion Club Podcast. I'm Justin Hall, and joining me is Ian Duncan. I'm especially excited to be able to sit down with Ian today and discuss his new book, On Cove Mountain. This book has been in the works for some time, and I've had the pleasure of seeing it come together little by little, so I can't wait to introduce it to you. In our discussion today, we will talk about mental illness and recovery, about drama and memory, about finding peace and freedom in the midst of pain, and also about the healing power that comes through telling your story. This is episode four of The Notion Club. The book we're talking about today is the drama our world needs to hear. It's a true story. It's about being lost in a darkness that's so deep that all hope is a delusion. But it's also the story about light breaking in and hope actually becoming true. This book describes in unflinching detail the shockingly commonplace ways uh, a man can go mad. But it also tells about the odyssey to find, in the end, uh, freedom and peace. It's about many things, but significantly among all of its themes, it's about darkness and despair. It's about the torments of mental illness. It's about broken relationships and hearts shattered beyond repair. But it's also about light and true hope, uh, about adventure and homecoming, and even hearts being made whole once again and love outshining everything. This is the story of Ian Duncan, as told in his latest book, On Cove Mountain. The story begins in a padded cell in a psychiatric ward, where Ian was once confined during his commitment, often brawling with orderlies, or at other points adrift in a medicated stupor. And this is, of course, just the beginning of all the drama that follows, and reading the story is essentially the experience of suffocating at the bottom of a sea, rushing frantically to the top, finally breaking the surface, uh, sucking oxygen and air and feeling the warmth of sunlight, uh, finding freedom, in other words. But we haven't gotten there yet, and I don't want to skip over the heart of the story. Ian, at this point in the memoir, you said that you wore shame like a lead jacket, And at times, you literally ran from people you saw in public just to avoid having to tell them what had happened to you. And yet, 19 years later, you've written this book for the entire world to read. So what's changed? Why do you want to tell this story now, Um, the very story you were once so consumed with keeping secret? Well, I think that's exactly what we should expect uh, when we encounter the redemptive love of Christ and and that 
power of his redemption. Just like Charles Wesley wrote, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And that's the freedom that redemption gives us, the the freedom from shame to, to tell our stories. And of, of course, that doesn't mean it was easy. Uh, I had to learn how to tell this story, as you can imagine, really over a period of almost 20 years. And I had to make a number of, of painful attempts. Anytime you you begin to, to try to write through a traumatic story, at first you're really sort of reliving it in your mind and trying to you know wade through emotions and translate that out onto the the page and it's a very as you can imagine it's a it's a very difficult process i had i had a number of friends that sort of served as as sounding boards for me one of them um, was a friend i was at seminary with and and he sat across from me i think we were at an ihop and he sat there and listened to me sort of lay out this story and afterwards, he said, you know, I, I think if I had gone through all that, I would have just died. That was actually a very validating thing to hear. It was, it was a challenge for me having moved to a new city and started a, a graduate program just to sort of decide, okay, now that I'm in a new city and no one knows me, how am I going to tell my story? And also around that same time, uh, I became a storyteller. I started writing fiction, and that was really a part of I think the therapeutic process uh, for me was learning how to tell not just my story, but stories in general, and then coming to believe in my story, believing that I had a story to tell, realizing when I saw people's reactions, like, wow, this really is a story that, that can be told. So somewhere along the way, I came to realize not only that I had a story to tell, but that it was actually far more beneficial and liberating to tell that story than to attempt to hide it. So uh, give us some context for this story. Uh, I've described it from my own perspective, having read the book, I think, four times now. But tell us about the story from your perspective, and maybe not even the perspective of an author, but, you know, actually the very person who lived through all of it. Essentially, it's the story of a prodigal, of someone who grew up in the church, but largely departed from it later once he started making you know, his own decisions. Even though I was sort of a you know, evangelical super kid and had memorized a thousand verses in the Awana clubs and had, had done um, everything I was supposed to do, I still fell prey to the deceitfulness of sin. Really, my experience was one of God pursuing me. Just, I love the poem, The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. He has a wonderful line in that poem that says, all things betray thee who betrayest me. And that was my experience of being betrayed by every idol that I clung to, having my life essentially fall apart in every area that I attempted to hide from God. It was in some ways a, a Jonah story of, of running from God and being pursued by him. And I, I did everything I could really to create my own religion, my own self-determined uh, success and religion of pleasure and satisfaction. And that's why I deal in the book with a lot of taboo subjects, you know, depression, pornography, sex outside of marriage, all the sort of rot that is destroying our culture 
and yet, for some reason, a lot of us that even those of us that claim to have answers to these sorts of things can't quite muster the temerity to talk about them. I mentioned some of the themes of the book, uh, depression and despair, mental illness, but also homecoming, adventure and love, all of which taken together sort of become the drama of the book. But these are not disembodied themes, and in fact, they might sound like contradictory ideas or realities. So what is it that underpins these? What, what greater overarching theme unifies them into a coherent tale? Uh, in other words, what is the most significant theme in the story? Yeah, there are a number of, of themes, and I like what you said about they're not disembodied. They they really are embodied in a story. To answer your question, though, I, I would say victory is probably the biggest theme for me. And a lot of these subjects that I've brought up, you know, these these taboo subjects, they, they were things that nearly destroyed me in a very real sense. They nearly killed me. And these weren't just behaviors that I needed to modify these were sins to be defeated. You know, a real war was being waged in my heart. This is where I think Christianity and psychology part ways and, and where they're incompatible. And they're not incompatible in, in every way, but they are in this way. And, and that is that psychology tends to label people and then just leave them uh, with those labels and, and without any ability to change that label for the rest of their lives. Like I, I mentioned in the book that I was labeled as bipolar only two hours after the police dropped me off at the the hospital and that that took me over 17 years to get rid of that label to shed the stigma and really to rebuild my own confidence in my mind but that's the sort of thing we see at you know aa meetings um, for example, you know, what do you do? The first thing you introduce yourself, hi, I'm Ian Duncan and I'm a, you know, you identify with your vice, you know, I'm a addict, I'm a drug addict, I'm an alcoholic, whatever that your, your particular demons happen to be, your identity is, is closely associated with those things. And really without any hope of, of changing that. So psychology's definition of, of dysfunction really becomes not the ailment itself, but the point at which the ailment begins to interfere with your normal life, which to me is like saying that cancer becomes a problem when it causes you to fall down a set of stairs. What about eradicating the damn thing? You know, what about real victory? And personally, I just I just find it to be entirely unsatisfying, anything less than than real victory and real changes, you know, down in our in our very natures. That unfortunately, that's too much to ask of modern psychology, but it's not too much to ask of God. Yeah, one of the deficiencies in psychiatry is that it doesn't ever attempt to change the nature of a person or a soul. And it's actually often very skeptical about the idea of a soul itself. Instead, it takes into account a, you know, a list of, of symptoms and applies a label to those symptoms and then offers medications to go along with that label. And then, you know, the medications that go along with the medications for the label without any real hope that the nature, 
can be changed, that the nature of a person, the personality of a person is something that is in embedded in the neurology of that biological entity, that neurochemical structure, and that, in fact, the negative parts of a person, you know, the shadow, ought to be not, not defeated, but actually integrated, that there really is no overturning of an old nature into a new. One of the pernicious things actually about the label when it becomes so fixed and when there is no possibility of redemption from it is that in in this case it's the wrong story and it forbids you it forbade you from telling the right story and it seems to be that in order for you to achieve victory and redemption it was actually a literal process of telling a story that in some sense you had to tell the right story in order to repair um, essentially the the false history that had become a stigma for you and then on on top of that just this process of writing this memoir you know coming to the point where this was a story that you could tell that was itself the redemption yeah absolutely i mean i could there are a number of drafts and attempts to tell this story and this this memoir is by no means the first it's it's really sort of the culminating ability to tell that story that arose from all my failed attempts to tell it over the years that is i think a good way of putting it that it the retelling of the story itself is a defeat of that hopelessness that materialism and that's really most psychology is really derivative of a type of scientific materialism. You know, the philosophers were right about human experience being a prison. You have no hope of changing your nature if you are trapped within that experience. And if if we're limited to the contents of that closed room with no door and no you know, no window, human experience, that's that's all, if that's all we have is our nature. What hope do we have of changing it? But revelation is what breaks into the prison and, and sets the prisoners free. And that's that's the story I learned to tell. But so much of psychology, I, I believe, is, is wrong-headed in the sense that it only treats or attempts to treat one aspect of a person being the chemical aspect or the, the mental aspect, you know, using trial and error and chemicals and neurotransmitters bouncing around in your brain and and seeing a person as just being the sum total of those things, whereas a more sophisticated worldview realizes that we humans are a hybrid. You know, C.S. Lewis was so good on this subject saying that we're a hybrid of the spiritual and the physical. And to have any hope of treating the whole person, you have to take that into account. You have to treat a person as a spiritual entity with problems to work out, which I really think narrative for me has been far more powerful than any any drug, certainly. Actually, uh, I, I think you said those exact words in the first episode when we were talking about, you know, hiking, mm-hmm. approaching writing as an approach to the whole person, treating the the whole person as a spiritual, mental and physical entity. The way that we have done this, not just for writing, but also for, you know, sanity, (laughs) has been out on the trails hiking. And the book is titled On Cove Mountain because much of the story uh, actually takes place on and around a mountain here in Appalachia. 
one that has in many senses become your home. So Cove Mountain plays the part of a of a central character throughout the book. And you and I have both had the same experience with mountains that, as we talked about in episode one, they have become a kind of refuge. Can you describe this with respect to Cove Mountain? You know, in, in what ways has it been significant in your life? So significant, in fact, that it deserves the title of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a mountain that is actually a very popular day hike. And I first hiked up there as, as a teenager with my friends. But I began to go there again and again in a way that sort of defies the typical hiking experience. And, you know, I didn't just hike up there, take a few selfies and hike back down the mountain. You know, I, I began to go there in a sojourning kind of way. And I also began to realize that at one point, hiking was becoming a, a type of therapy for me in a way that nothing else quite was. And it was, I, I feel now looking back on it, that I was enacting a metaphor of, of a journey. And I was acting out the fact that there was somewhere I needed to go and somewhere else I needed to get. And some level of exertion that needed to be expended in getting there. You know, there's so many, I think, deep uh, psychological reasons and, and spiritual reasons why I needed that. Just sitting on the summit and meditating and the type of meditative experience that I think our culture is too quick to discard as being a sign of some sort of mental illness. You know, I, I, I remember having someone come up to me at one of my jobs in an office where I was just sitting in my cubicle staring out the window and one of my coworkers came up to me and said, are, are you okay? It looks like you're thinking about something. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's not good. Nobody should just be sitting and thinking about something. You know, but that was what that mountain facilitated that process for me. And, and I, I just became sort of a haunt of these wilderness places. This is also the mountain where I rode out the storm, the 2011 super outbreak was actually one of the biggest storms in U.S. history, killed hundreds of people, spawned hundreds of tornadoes, which is sort of like a, the experience of the apocalypse in nature or about as close to it as I would care to come. Later, I met my wife on that mountaintop and also later named my son after that mountain. His middle name is Cove. It seems to touch on so many biblical metaphors of God meeting people on mountaintops and God meeting people in the wilderness and prodigals and lost sheep and, and that sort of thing that I started thinking about what if a book could revolve around this mountain the way my life really did. You uh, released a book trailer recently and in the trailer you read an excerpt from the book and the excerpt you're on the mountain, you're, you're describing your experience on the mountain. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can listen to that. Sure. I don't remember how long I've been here, and I haven't seen enough yet to leave. I stare at the rambling blue mountains until I am sure I will see them when I close my eyes a thousand miles away. Sure that I will feel the sun-soaked rock under my hands, and hear the wind, pure and clean, blowing through the branches. A holy sound like air through a cathedral spire, like breath through a flute without notes. And I know that I will come to this place often, 
even when the only mountains around me are the geometric outlines of skyscrapers, and my only view the heat baking off flat, pale concrete. This is the mountain where God met me, where he interrupted my life, where he struck me, where he healed me, where he directed storms and hung rainbows and measured my steps along the trail, planning to perfection the very second he would bring my wife out from behind a shaking rhododendron as surely as he presented Eve to Adam. This is the mountain where I worked out my salvation with fear and trembling. This is my nest in the wilderness, this hill my Ebenezer. As long as I last, as long as my heart and my limbs hold out in climbing here, I will come. So this book is a something of a departure from your previous three books, all of which were novels. So what are the challenges, what are the differences, and, and even the similarities between writing a fictional narrative and creating an entire world out of your imagination, and then also dealing with a story that's true, that, that has already been formed, and having to structure it into a, a story that resembles, in fact, a fictional narrative, a narrative that has, you know, the, the shape of drama. How, how was your experience writing this book different? And, and how has that informed your perspective, not just on writing, but actually on your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say the process is probably more similar than than people would suspect. We tend to get really comfortable with a one particular genre like fiction and then feel paralyzed when we enter nonfiction like this must be completely different, but really as you know, much of fiction is drawn from real life as sort of an, an amalgam of you know aspects of real characters that you've known to create new characters and bits and pieces of stories assembled, you know, from real life to make a fictional story. And uh, a a narrative memoir like this is similar in the sense that you're using a lot of the techniques of fiction to make the story as interesting as it really was. I mean, you're not creating drama out of thin air. You're bringing to the surface the dramatic aspects and you're creating an experience for the reader so that they can pass through that drama along with you. The differences, I would say, are learning to draw sort of a narrative line through history. But learning to drive that line through my history is you feel you start to feel like you're assembling another history. It's not exactly the history that happened because you have to leave out so many things. And that's where a, a memoir is different than an autobiography. This is not even intended to be my complete life story, and no one would even want to hear my complete life story. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, I'm choosing what to include and what not to include, and I'm addressing those aspects to a theme, like one of the themes we talked about earlier, victory. You know, I have these certain themes in mind that I want to bring across, and it can be almost be unnerving at times because you realize how I choose to do this can color this one way or the other. And you realize how history sort of splits into these different layers. There's history as God knows it. Then there's history as I remember it. 
Then there's history as I managed to record it in my journals, which served as my source material for much of this. Yeah, so you have three kinds of history. Right, at least. The history of omniscience, Mm -hmm. the history from memory, Mm -hmm. and the history from historians. Right. (laughs) And and in this process, you have to essentially work from all three and Mm -hmm. understanding, you know, the revelation that you've had, but also the source material of your of your journals and which you, I mean, you had to play sort of two roles. You had to mm-hmm. embody what you had experienced as memory, but also looking at it as here's a primary source from mm-hmm. the perspective of an historian right? and then cobbling together a narrative that tells the story from a thematic perspective. Yeah, you really do wear so many, you know, at one point you're wearing the hat of a journalist, another point you're wearing the hat of a essayist, a memoirist, a, you know, a, a novelist, you know, all these different hats come into play. And that's not only something a writer has to do. Anyone who's looking back on their life, if they're going to cope with it, has to mm-hmm. form it into a story that makes sense, that is cogent and coherent. Mm-hmm. One of the most valuable things that I've seen from a psychologist going back to psychology recently um, is from Jordan Peterson, Mm -hmm. um, who recommends this as a method, but he also has sort of an infrastructure called the self-authoring program. Hmm. And he he essentially says, go write out your story, Mm -hmm. you know, tell your story from beginning to end, recognizing actually that we're not just, you know, a biological entity, we're actually an actor in the theater of the world in eternity acting out a story and in order for us to make sense of our existence we actually have to conceive of it in those terms and that's what we talked about in the journaling episode Mm -hmm. telling the story of your life yeah that is such a cathartic experience to tell your story and you know i've known people that were veterans and Olympic athletes and all sorts of people that had fascinating stories to tell. And I've seen this, this pattern before of of people who sit down and there's this outpouring, you know, and, and they write about, I'd say between 45 and 90 pages, depending on how ambitious they are and how, how much, how comfortable they are with writing to begin with. But that's really just sort of this lump of clay. And I think I think that's the next barrier. You know, there's people that have always wanted to write a book, never get around to it. Then there's the people that actually do write a sizable chunk of it, but then don't know what to do with that lump. And the answer is really that's where your narrative skills come into play. And you start to fashion that lump according to the rules of storytelling. And that's where you realize, oh, there's a, there's a missing part here. I need to spend more time building to this climax. I need to develop these characters just like you would in fiction. And when you take that lump and start to knead it and roll it out and stretch it out and hang it on the armature of fiction, you know, and you have the same rules apply, that's when, you know, this has to be a satisfying experience for a reader to sit down and read. Mm -hmm. I think Flannery O'Connor once said, and she was speaking mostly about short fiction, but in any case, any piece of writing has to have a complete dramatic act. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. hero's journey. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is learning to see your life in terms of the hero's journey. You know, where was your innermost cave? Where, what was the treasure? Where was the dragon? You know, how did, how, why did you set out? Did you initially resist the call to adventure? All the things that 
fiction writers use have application to to telling your story. And it's important to say that, again, this isn't something that we're contriving or, or right. that you contrived out of your history. It's actually, you know, fiction writers use those techniques because mm. they're mimicking life. Right. And your job was recognized, and our job should be recognizing these realities in our life, that our life is a, is not just a, you know, mindless series of accidents. Yeah, or bullet points. Yeah. Yeah, and, we, and this, a good example of this might be that that one person you know that can tell a story so well that everyone's just riveted, you know, around the dinner table. You know, you can say, I just went to the store and bought a bunch of bananas. Or you can tell a 30-minute riveting story about how you almost had a car wreck on the way there and there were, the grocery store was full of crazy people and, and you almost didn't make it out of there in one piece. And, you know, like the, the natural skills of a storyteller, you're telling the same story. It's all true. But you bring those skills to the table and you're really doing it for the sake of your readers. Because here's the thing, you're, you're really performing like a magician. You're trying to get the reader to experience in the space of a 200-page book what you lived out in 20 years. How is that even possible? And the answer is that narrative framework and those narrative storytelling skills. On this point, there, there might be some skepticism and readers that attend memoirs, personal memoirs, you know. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, there should be. Why does this book have a right to exist as a book? Why, you know, why um, one person's personal story, you know, the, the details of, you know, one person's life? What, what makes it so significant? I had a friend ask me when I was first starting this memoir and working through some of the initial chapters, he asked me, you know, why should anyone read your life story? And I think that's an excellent question to ask. And that really is where we get into the importance of including these types of archetypes and metaphors that connect us to other people so that the particulars of our story don't stop there. They connect us to a world of readers who also happen to be prodigals like I was. And that that archetype of the prodigal or that archetype of pilgrim on the trail, you know, these are things that connect us through time and history to so many people who have had similar experiences. They make our particular story universal. You know, we know deeply, even if we don't know the word archetype or what that means, we know this sort of thing down in our very bones. We know what it means to be a, a lost son wishing you could go home or someone has, that has no sense of belonging in the world and feels lost. Like we know these, these basic structures and we feel them deeply. And so in, the, in that sense, hopefully this story connects and is worth telling because it has something to say to all those people that have wrestled with depression and feel like it's a dragon that can't be defeated. I just can't even describe what it does to your mind to be able to tell your story and to reckon with your past and to be reconciled to it in a way that's meaningful and to f there's just a wholeness and that's the way I think we're supposed to feel about our past. I think we're supposed to be able to get our heads around it and we have the framework to understand it and describe it, not to feel that it's this blur behind us that, that we don't understand. How did we get here? Why am I like this? but that we can tell the story 
that's that sort of mastery of of one's own self to know oneself is i think key to real mental health the story the drama that unfolds in on cove mountain it's a universal drama it's a mm-hmm. it's a drama the particularities of which belong to you alone right. but it's it's a drama that is universal mm-hmm. and you point to this on multiple occasions that um, you draw reference to in one scene to Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Mm-hmm. And it helps us to recognize that this is actually the very drama that we as readers are living out. It, it's something that has direct and compelling application to us. Mm. And maybe uh, a great place to end this discussion would be, in some sense, returning to the beginning, uh, as you talked about being a lost son. Uh, being a prodigal, that universal state of existence that all of us identify with. At the very beginning of the book, in the prologue, you describe being on Cove Mountain, in fact, being lost on Cove Mountain. Maybe that would be a great place to end this discussion uh, until we pick it up next time. Sure. It is not uncommon for hikers to become lost on Cove Mountain. The summit is a popular destination for day hikers and bears a moniker nearly as memorable as the 360-degree view from the highest uplifted slab of dolomite, Dragon's Tooth. The trail makes many confusing perambulations and blind turns around rocky outcroppings, and in years past there were not so many signs posted along the way as there are now an almost comical number if you did not know the mountain's history. Signs warning those setting out of the miles of rugged terrain ahead, of the likelihood of needing water, food, and a flashlight if caught unexpectedly on the mountain after dark. These signs are perhaps both a concession to the softness that has befallen the general population, as well as an admission, however late, of the mountain's beguiling nature. I have come across lost hikers myself, nearly at dusk, far from the trail they should have been using to return to their cars. Did they follow the white blazes or the blue? I ask. What blazes, they say. I lead them down from the mountain in the failing light, stumbling in the shadows behind me, following the beam of my headlamp through a corridor of trees illuminated like a tunnel, all the way to the parking lot, where we find the rescue squad about to strike out, carrying a litter crisscrossed with Velcro straps and duffel bags bulging with first aid equipment, their faces grim and the radios clipped to their belts squawking with admonitions from their supervisors. This is not the first time they have been here. One of the mountain's best-known stories was of an amateur rock climber who fell perhaps 75 feet from the summit, was recovered alive and carefully portaged down the mountain over miles of rugged terrain by a team of intrepid rescuers, all the way to an open pasture only to expire as he was being loaded onto the medevac helicopter. I have often watched from the summit as hikers far below depart from the trail and unwittingly head towards steep ravines, where so many others have made the same mistake that the strong sign of a trail has been worn there until, at last, it vanishes among the rocks and I see them stop, perplexed. 
I cut my hands and yelled down from the highest pinnacle, this another disorienting moment, a voice, as it were, from heaven. You're going the wrong way, I shout. The hikers, dumbfounded, stand frozen for a moment, then look behind them and begin struggling up through the rocks to find the point at which they took their first wrong step. But I am no infallible guide. I have been lost on Cove Mountain myself. Not merely disoriented, you will understand, but profoundly and entirely lost. I have hiked that mountain literally hundreds of times. It may have even been true that there were few points on the old dragon and the forest growing along his back that were unfamiliar to me, and that I could have found my way back from any of them. But there was a reason I was there, wandering those trails at all hours, so available to the lost. The reason was that I was the most lost of all. This is the story of how I was found. Thank you for listening to the Notion Club podcast. Today's episode features music by one of my close friends, Taylor Flowers, performing Prelude number 17 from Opus 82 by Capustin. The book On Cove Mountain by Ian Duncan is scheduled for release on July 4th, and there couldn't be a more perfect book for you to start on Independence Day. The Notion Club podcast will return, and in the coming weeks, we'll be continuing our adventures with several distinguished guests, truly great minds talking about truly exciting ideas. Join the club, and make sure to be back here for more next Thursday. Thanks for listening.